Hello, uh, you are listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. It's your your Sunday news hour on Radio Free Brooklyn. Uh, this is Emily Scott. I'm your host for the day, and my guest host is my friend Brian McTiernan. Hi, Brian. Hey, how's it going? It's going all right. It's hot outside, huh? Yeah, Again. still that, that summer heat is still weather. <laughs> it's still happening. Um, but yeah, thank you for being here today. Mm-hmm. Um, so Brian, you are currently finishing your degree in labor studies. Is that right? Am I getting the wording right? Yeah. Uh, the, the degree is called urban and community studies, but labor is kind of what I, what cool. I focus on. Awesome. So with that in mind, I'm really excited to have you here today to get your perspective on a lot of stuff. Cause we often talk about things that cross into that world. Cool. Regularly. Uh, yeah. Very excited to chat then. Awesome. All right. So let's just dive in with our local news topics for the day. All right. So um, a new report has found that the MTA, which is where most if we're unaware of it, you got to read a little more news, but um, is facing some major cash issues. Um, And the new report found that a sizable portion of its budget problems um, can be uh, blamed on poor overtime management and outdated timekeeping systems. Uh, According to AM New York reporting, um, overtime accounts for 16 percent of the MTA's roughly five point four billion dollar payroll budget and has increased significantly across every agency last year, except the bridges and tunnels sector, uh, which is the smallest department and the only one that uses a modern timekeeping system. So um, the report criticizes the MTA for not responding to what has been about like over 10 years of warnings that their budget needs to be adjusted. Like this is unsustainable essentially. um, And that timekeeping issues were a big part of that. Um, so, like, why has it taken so long? Like, why why would it take so long for an organization like the MTA to, like, to do anything about, like, if, you, if you're having all these warnings over time, like, why don't you do something sooner about it, about budgeting stuff? Um, and well, wh- I, I just think that's a sh- strange way to approach the question, I guess. Sure. How would because, you say it? Yeah. I mean, the... Uh, Budgeting, it's not like the MTA hasn't spent tons of money on big right, projects but like spe- in recent right. years. Specifically uh, with updating its timekeeping system. So like so so like to help fix overtime pay issues. Yeah, I mean I have I have no idea right. why why Yeah, they, I mean uh, I, I you can look at it from a lot of different ways, right? Like we don't we'll never know specifically why it you know, what the bureaucracy is happening, but it's kind of one of those things where when we when we look at organizations like that and kind of we can we can make educated guesses about the type of bureaucracy that might be like preventing something like like this from being fixed faster. Sure, maybe. But, it, but like uh, if you are going to pull out a number on, and say like last year the mm-hmm. uh, MTA's overtime budget went up a lot, that's because they were doing more work. Mm-hmm. Like they've had big projects where. That have required them to ask workers to work overtime. In some cases, mandatory overtime. Yeah, uh, no, that's fair. Yeah, that's some of it for sure. But I mean, I think the the report found was that that wasn't the only issue. Yeah, I mean, and that, then they and then they singled out a case of like a uh, one guy that you know stole like three hundred thousand dollars. Yeah. Or, or, well, that wasn't so. That's a separate. Yeah, that you're referring to a, a report that's been going around a lot too. And this this report that I'm referencing was was actually what was it called? What's it called? It was um they decided to have this report done because that happened. 
is what I was reading. But um, the report itself wasn't trying to look at fraud, but more like actual concrete things they could do. So so it was the report was less. Um, yeah, like less calling out like this is illegal, like what, what this has happened. This is like fraud that's happening right now. And that's why all this money is being taken and more looking at systematic issues that are also doing a drain on the system. And and that's where I think that like uh, mm-hmm. looking at like updating. Uh, yeah timekeeping clocks like is that really what's going to improve that's the MTA the re- well, service? well that's what the, the reports i mean no so it's it's <laughs> yeah right so okay so that's a really fair point where um the the uh, there's so many issues that play with the mta and this report itself is specifically looking at budget issues um where you know the idea was is that if there's more money that can be spent on projects um that need to happen then it could over- improve the overall system and that's uh, assuming that money and being used correct would be used correctly. And my point is that the MTA has spent tons of money yeah. on huge projects in the yeah. past 10 years, just projects that have only benefited the wealthiest mm-hmm. of New York. Yeah, that's a really good but point. When it comes to, you know, fixing uh, stations in the outer boroughs, mm-hmm. you know, just routine maintenance like switches, updating the switches, yeah. uh, that stuff's not happening. Yeah. But when it comes to projects like the Second Avenue sub- Subway yeah. or like, uh, you know, big station renewals downtown. Mm-hmm. There's money there when the, yeah, when they do the those. Yeah. Uh, or like uh, the the subway at the World Trade Center. Like, have mm-hmm. you seen that station? Yeah, I mean that that also. Um, I mean, the, if you bring up the World Trade Center, there's a whole lot of emotional energy spent when you talk about projects happening down there too. But I don't disagree that the like the the grandeur and the amount of grandeur, whatever the and the amount of money spent down there. Um, yeah, and and you look at Hudson Yards and the brand new stations they've built there, um, which is a, an area that's going to benefit a lot of people making a lot of money. Um, so uh, I like I I think that uh, stories like this mm-hmm. come up because we do have a very legitimate political crisis mm-hmm. and just a civil crisis on our hands with the deteriorating subway system. Yeah. Uh, but to try to put that on like. Uh, the TWA, like, uh, which is the Transit Workers of America, mm-hmm. which is what represents most of... Is it uh, the union? Yeah, it's the union yeah. that represents most of uh, workers at the MTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, to me, seems really misplaced mm-hmm. when, uh, like, look at how their how subways, how we pay for them. Since mm-hmm. the 70s, we, we made a really clear decision in governance that, like, we're not going to keep financing public goods mm-hmm. what we're going to do is uh you privatize? know privatize everything try to sell any kind of common good that we have we're going to try to s- slice it up and sell it out to the highest bidder mm-hmm. and so in a re- regime like that like the only way to uh finance the subway they came up with two things mm-hmm. bear hikes mm-hmm. and debt financing mm. I don't know much about debt financing. Just meaning you're borrowing. You're, you're, you don't have the money and you borrow it anytime. So they, they stopped doing routine maintenance. Mm-hmm. So now we're at a crisis, yeah. you know, 40 years later where it's like, okay, this, the system is crumbling and mm-hmm. there's really expensive, like it's going to cost a lot more yeah. to fix Literally now. crumbling. Like that's Literally part, yeah. crumbling. Like yeah. it's unsafe. Yeah. Uh, and had we been doing maintenance all along, it would be a lot cheaper The bill what that needs to be mm-hmm. done right now. Uh, but like what the debt financing means is that when I when I pay my fare to get over here, mm-hmm. uh, 
that money is not going to station maintenance. That money is going to pay off interest on a loan from a bank. Uh, if we really wanted to fix the subway system, there's one way to do that. You tax the rich. Mm-hmm. And right now, the rich aren't paying for it. Yeah. I mean, that is getting into a much broader issue, of course, that I don't necessarily disagree with at uh-huh. all. Um, I think, yeah. So I think you can look at this story from the micro like micro and macro right so micro looking at specifics and i mean this isn't unrelated to what you're talking about with um regular maintenance on just a more bureaucratic level so maintenance in the sense that like accurate just accurately knowing when people are done with work like and and there's no standardized system for tracking work and i that's the article was telling me i don't know specifics on that to Mm -hmm. elaborate but just updating the system so that we're they're running um, their their employees are working under a modern system, essentially, is also something that's missing um, in terms of timekeeping and, you know, punching and punching out. And I don't know specifics. Right. But that's what the article was alluding to in the. Yeah, sure. I, I don't yeah. know specifics either. Right. And I. Uh, I don't know how uh, workers feel about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. And but I mean, my. Yeah. Uh, Sorry. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You're still you're processing what you want to say. That's totally fine. So I'm just going to keep talking a little bit. Yeah. But but yeah. So like you're 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 expand you're expanding out and saying well you know focusing on timekeeping misses a larger point which isn't necessarily wrong. Um. But it's also it's also a, a piece of the puzzle when you're looking at um mismanagement. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and I absolutely think that. Uh, yeah a lot of workers are suffering from the mismanagement of the MTA mm-hmm. and uh, I don't think I mean, there's been a lot citizens, very, yeah. I don't think there's really strong leadership uh, from their unions either. Uh, but uh, to me, the time clock issue is there is a danger there when you start saying like, okay, well why not just uh, improve it where it's like, can turn into a race to the bottom where it's like, okay, so what's next? Like, do we have like biometric, you know, right. measurements no, and, on yeah. everyone? Like <laughs> Amazon? Really, yeah, yeah. Work? Well, that's the, I no, mean, no, that's, no. And I don't if you want to talk about modern management, that's what modern management is. Is like you put a freaking uh, armband on someone and make sure their Does heart, Amazon do that? Yeah. Um, and make sure their heart rate never goes down or make sure they don't, can't have time to go I, to the bathroom. Is that real? Yes. I mean, I know, have, I they, know bathroom clock, breaks is a whole thing. But they yeah. also clack, clock your time on the floor to make sure yeah. you're like making your quota. Uh, right. Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is a classic, uh, I mean, yeah, modern management. This is like, uh, you're talking about like Taylorism. Have you ever heard that term where Mm -hmm. it's like, uh, is a guy who I forget his first name kind of came up with the idea of like the the time clock where you Mm, take a worker on it. Well, no, not the time clock. Sorry. The uh, time test clock test. Oh. Where you take someone a worker on assembly line, you clock them and mm-hmm. say, "Okay, this is how someone can do this at the fastest," and then you say, "Okay, so now we expect everyone to do it this Got fast." It. And sure, like that does work and can get people to be efficient, but what does it do to like uh, the culture of work? Like, do we want? Uh, I mean, that's that's do a broader, we want public em- right. employees to feel like? How do we want them to feel about their work? Do we want to feel them to feel like? Right. I if mean, you want trust, it has to be a two way thing. Right, and, and clearly, yeah. you're not like, and I think trust needs to be built on transparency. We're not getting that from any of the parties involved. Right. Uh, right. No. And, and you're you're now you're tapping into an even broader societal issue beyond the MTA. You're talking about our modern American work um, views on how work needs should be and needs to happen. And I've I've seen some really interesting articles recently that's like talking about how 
Um, if you like really like look at that issue, like part of one of the solutions for climate change could just be like, let's just all just be okay with not doing more or like, let's just yeah, work, like, work uh, less and three just, hour work. Week. Yeah. Like, like, well, three hour work week. Yeah. No. <laughs> Shut up. That's not a thing. <laughs> I don't. That's not a real thing. I mean, if you want to address climate change, I think you have to get I'm serious. You have to get real about like. uh, No, I mean, yeah. I mean, now we're really we're really expanding beyond this issue, which is very interesting. Um, But not but. um, And no. And this is partly why I wanted to have you. I know you would. I knew you would turn it into a really interesting. I think it is interesting because it is a big deal. How you're how you're clocked at work is a big deal. And And, and I don't disagree. I don't invasive. I don't disagree that it can be really dehumanizing, too. Right. I'm sure anyone. Yeah. Anyone that's worked in the U.S. in the past, you know, 10 years, yeah. I think, has some experience with how time, how time clocks or scheduling well, can be. Right. Can I've be had bad. jobs. So, I, right. I've had jobs where I currently have a job where I clock in, clock out. But it, it's very simple. I've had jobs where a much more like, you know, corporate style, like tra- like tracking your hours and billing your hours and things like that. And it's 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 not dehumanizing in the same way that I have to wear a band that's tracking my, my steps, but it's like, it's like me compartment. It's like, well, here's how I compartmentalize my hours, which are, and it's dehumanizing in the sense where it's like, well, how do, how do I know I spend every minute of this hour working on this project? And it's like, my brain's doing multiple things at once. And it's making me have to pretend that I'm robotically focusing on yeah. like it, there are and, a lot and, of and ways and is that really helping productivity like couldn't you like if you have know. to pretend I'm like gonna, this is a very interesting conversation <laughs> but we have so much more to talk yeah, about yeah. so um okay let's I know because you're here and because we're talking about labor I feel like touching on the union a little bit more before we move on to the next topic for local would be interesting um yeah I mean maybe I could uh talk a little bit kind of of the context of uh yeah whatever you know public uh Public workers in New York State. Sure. Where I don't know if you know about the Taylor laws. Too. Is that what related to what you just said? Tailoring? No. Interesting. Same name. Yeah. Uh, so the Taylor laws are what uh, kind of govern uh, work relations for public sector workers in New York State. Okay. Where, uh, you know, in the 30s, uh, FDR starts the NLRB and that is, you know. National that, Labor Relations Board. Yes. And that is what governs on a federal scale Mm -hmm. workers and their unions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that's when workers in the U.S. got the legal right to unionize. Uh, But then in the 70s, actually, because uh, the TWA went on strike, transit workers went on strike uh, after, I I don't know how long the strike was, uh, but the workers won the strike, but then uh, the legislator uh, came out with laws, to new laws that kind of... uh, what do you call it? They took over like the NRB mm-hmm. for New York state for okay. uh, to, to just apply to the public sector in New York state, okay. arguing that uh, for like the civic good, we need to have some special rules about public sector workers. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that the Taylor law says is that public sector workers have, do not have the right to strike. Oh, uh, Interesting. And like for the public good, quote unquote. Yeah. I mean, the argument is like, uh, you know, what would happen if like the police department went on strike, the fire department went on strike. Right, right, right. Uh, Yeah. But this has really been used as uh, a tool to just squeeze public sector workers. In New York specifically? Yeah. Where, uh, I mean, if you can't, uh, if you don't have the credible threat of a strike, mm-hmm. uh, there's really no reason for your employer to 
bargain in good faith. Right. Uh, Interesting. And uh, that's so the TWU in 2005, I don't know if you remember TWA, sorry, mm-hmm. uh, went on strike. Uh, uh, and uh, they lost that strike. Uh, and also, like, uh, because of the Taylor laws, their, uh, the president of the union went to jail. Uh, the union had to pay huge fines. They this also was in New York specifically or not? Yeah, this is, this yeah. is TWA in, okay. New, in New York. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this is the MTA workers. Right. Uh, okay. And yeah, they also had like, uh, they took away like the unions in the U S have a automatic dues checkoff. So mm-hmm. if you're in a workplace, uh, and you're a member of a union, you automatically, your dues get automatically mm-hmm. put from your paycheck. Yeah. Like, uh, like how you, your taxes get with health yeah. basically. Uh, and they suspended that. I don't even know. Uh, I don't know if, if there's still punishments in place mm-hmm. over that, but it's. Uh, it's fascinating. It's fascinating. I'm going to I'm going to speed it up a little bit. Just yeah, sorry, you know, I no, no, I, no. I, I, mean, I love a good history lesson. I'm like, I'm excited that we have an interesting but perspective. I, I'm just on all saying this. there's yeah. a lot of uh, the. So that was yeah, the TWA that's that a lot did that. Of stuff, right? And uh, I mean, this background, when we talk about the MCA, which we'll we'll never I don't see stop ta- uh, stopping like not talking about it for the foreseeable future. Like as new stories come out just about because whatever's happening with the L train project, we've been talking mm-hmm. about it a lot in the last couple months since I've been on the show, just new things coming up about um, the attempts to fix what's wrong and why it's broken in the first place and things like that. Um, it's been yeah. really interesting I, to watch. I, yeah. I just think there's always, there's a political game happening always. where yeah. like there's the always. governor, the mayor, well, they all want to find people to blame. Well, it's also, and, it's an interesting word. And the city, MTA too wants well, to find people MTA to blame. Is and, but the to fu- blame the rank and file workers doesn't make any sense. To me. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, it, I think they're not, and, and they made a note, a point of saying we don't, it's not the workers fault. It's a management issue. Um, and it's not, yeah. I mean, and you can look at a lot of ways. Um, one thing I found was interesting is that I, and I, I'm going to ask this last question and then yeah. move on. But, um, is that they so the MTA implemented a hiring freeze earlier this year in an attempt to but like better budget and fix the budget. Um, but the report, you know, um, says that that's part of why the overtime has been crazy is because there maybe aren't enough workers to do normal hours. And I was mm-hmm. wondering if you had any thoughts on that from your own perspective on if it, if you see it as that being an issue that affects workers in a significant way. Um Sure. I mean, that's always uh, a, a tricky issue uh, where it could also be kind of a matter uh, of a lot of unions kind of have, have a tendency to try to protect their older workers mm-hmm. like at the cost of newer workers. Mm. And I think that that's a really dead end strategy for unions. Uh, right. Yeah, because unions, as you can be pro-union and still have issues with the way they run things, which I think... Yeah, and I think a lot of, uh, you see a lot of, like the, uh, like in this current thing, I do think there's a real threat that like uh, the scandal over the guy who stole a ton of money and then the stuff could lead to kind of crackdowns that affect work life for regular people. Yeah, It's not going to hurt the president of the union. That guy makes a good salary. Like they deal with these political scandals all the time and they're just not really accountable to their, uh, to their workers. So I think that uh, the change needs to come from a lot of places. Cool. Well, that was very interesting, Brian. Um, and we have one more local news story we're going to touch on, maybe mm-hmm. much more briefly, potentially. Yeah, I know. We took like half that. <laughs> it is fine. I know. I was good. I like. I like to have 
a different sort of pacing to the show sometimes. Yeah, and it's been I, really I hope it's not too boring. No, it's not. I don't think it's boring. <laughs> okay. um, and that's all that really matters is what cool. I think. Yeah. Okay, um, cool. So, okay. And then um, the next and last local story we have for today um, is about the New York Child Victims Act, which mm-hmm. we touched on earlier this year when we talked about the Boy Scout scandal that came out. Um, you heard about that, Brian? Boy Scouts? I don't know. I mean, I know it's either. Yeah. I know there's been scandals. Yeah, with yeah, the Boy yeah. Scouts. So a report came out within the last I want or like it became more nationally known. A report was done a few years ago, from what I remember, and essentially saying that the number of it was it's been operating like the Catholic Church essentially, where Boy Scout troop leaders have been um, sexually abusing their their scouts, the boys and the boys in the Boy Scouts, and then the the overarching organization has been trying to cover it up mm-hmm. or like move them around or just kind of keep it from becoming a like a criminal issue mm-hmm. in the in the larger public and just and, and it's really it's grotesque and the numbers are out, outrageous and I don't know them off the top of my head but it's it's was so reminiscent of the Catholic way the Catholic Church is notoriously operated um but the New York Child Victims Act was was specifically talked about because and I'm about to talk about it but mm-hmm. um yeah so it um the implement, implementation of the act finally moved forward on this past Wednesday because it Part of the act was um, opening up a year-long period during which sexual abuse survivors in New York can file claims against their abusers no matter when the abuse took place. So we have people coming forward that are now in their 80s um, saying that I was abused when I was in foster care or, the you know, this priest abused me, you know, 60 years ago or like, you know, mm-hmm. 80, you know, 70-something years ago, and they can make claims now. And so this is a year-long period it does not matter when it took place. And then after that, and after that year long period ends, it still extends the statute of limitations. So essentially for a year, the statute of limitations has been wiped out, which is incredible. And that, and so it's specifically, we were looking at New York when all that boy scout stuff was happening. Cause that this is the place right now where mm-hmm. anything that happened can actually face consequences, which is fascinating and really, and like, it's hard to hear these stories sometimes, but it's so important. Um, just for these, for people who have been, you know, made to keep quiet their whole lives um, to finally have a day to be like, this happened to me and this isn't okay. And you can't keep doing it. Um, Hundreds of lawsuits were filed on Wednesday, which was the first day of that year long period. The first day hundreds were filed. Um, And there's been a lot of law law firms um, gearing up to, to take on their, these caseloads that have been opening up. Um, So yeah. Um, so, Brian, you were raised Catholic, mm-hmm. um, and I have a quote here from the Catholic Church. Not to, like, put you on the stage, but it's in- no, I, I was raised Jewish. Like, definitely. it's like I – and also, like, everything that happened with, like, the, the Boston Globe story came out when we were, like, 10 or whatever. So it's been mostly on – it's been almost, like, as, as long as I've been able to be aware of things like this. It's been, like, well, the Catholic Church, like, you know them, right? Like, they, they do, like, fucked up stuff and then try and cover it up. It's just been, like, part of my – almost awareness of the Catholic church for most of my life. So Mm -hmm. I I look at this with a lot of like, well, of course, or like kind of skepticism. So, I mean, and you might too, but um, yeah, I mean, so anyway, so the Catholic church was a main opponent against the passage of the act, which doesn't really feel like a surprise, but it's still like really cynical and gross. I read a a story just about how much money they spent like lobbying against it. It's insane. And it's like, it's really (laughs) fucked up. It's like, this is like, and every time publicly, like they're like, oh, you know, like we're taking yeah. you know, actions to rectify right. or whatever. And it's like, this is how you rectify yeah. is to lobby exactly. against a bill that to it's protect, to, yeah. uh, or to get abuse people, victims. Yeah. 
Like, yeah, how is that consistent with what you're? Yeah, it's not at all. It's not at all. And the Archdiocese of New York um, was contacted by AM New York reporters and wrote back, you know, we continue to invite people to consider our successful program to bring compensation quickly to qualified claimants through the Archdiocesan Independent Reconciliation and Compensation Program. We ask that people pray for peace and healing for all those who have suffered from the sin and crime of the sexual abuse of minors, um, which sounds so disingenuous like here, like, like, and, and I was looking on their website too. And they, they acknowledge that, you know, we, we know that most victims don't just want money, blah, blah, blah. But it's like, well, then why even try and pretend that this is a good alternative to people just actually having a day in court or like, tr- like trying so hard to keep it from being a, a large, you know, like try and keep it within the confines of the church. It's just, it's just so. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it just speaks to the fact that they are, have not made any changes. No, and not, not like the ones the, they need to make. No. Right, like it, every yeah. time, every time this happens, the response is just more cover up. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. It's and it's, and it's, and the people who do the covering up get promotions. Like it's really, it's really atrocious. And, and this art and this recent, um, like research I was doing actually uh, re- revealed even more pretty heinous stuff that I didn't know about before. So I, I knew it was a practice in the Catholic church to when a, when a priest was accused of abuse to just move them to another uh, locality another place. And just like, no one there knows it happened and no one at the old place has to see that person anymore. And it's just like the way the church, instead of like just kicking that priest out, they like here, you can go here instead. And apparently it was a practice in the church to specifically send, um, priests to Latin American Hispanic communities, um, which had become nicknamed dumping grounds specifically. Like it happened often enough um, with the clear intention that language barriers or citizenship issues would keep um, any potential victims quiet, um, which is so fucked up. <laughs> it's so fucked up. And I, I think it speaks to a lot of other issues that we should start yeah. looking into, like uh, where like, yeah, it is. It is always the most vulnerable that yeah. suffer uh, when when you're talking about abuses of power. Yeah, because these are the people that have no voice to speak for themselves. Yep. Uh, and then you have to, I think, start asking what other services are being run by the Catholic Church that puts them in a position of power over vulnerable people. Whoa. What about homeless shelters that the Catholic Church runs? What about you know hospitals? Like, yeah, uh, so many things that like wow. that we have, and this again. I'll bring it back to my Ooh, bigger point is like yeah. when you live in a society that yeah. doesn't provide for the common good, yeah. then it's institutions like the church pick up the slack in certain places and it gives them so well, much power and, and it gives them so much power over vulnerable people. And it's under a, a, a what's it called? Like a mask of, oh, well, we're like, you know, Jesus and like good mm-hmm. for all and, you know, beloved and peace and blah, blah, blah. And with and that's a cloak that a lot of people with ill with selfish and cruel and cruel intentions not but like you know weird phrasing but like they like that's a default for a lot yeah, of those but people. in our society what else is there like yeah. we have like uh you know we don't have we don't really provide people with i know what the they need to survive including health need, so. insurance um all right so we gotta we gotta <laughs> keep it rolling this has been a very interesting local news discussion with you brian so we're gonna take a little musical break and when we're back, we're going to talk about a couple national news stories. Um, well, you're listening to Radio Free Brooklyn, Objection to the Rule. We'll be back in a couple of minutes.
Welcome back to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. That was This Is the Day by The The, or The The, The The, um, which I always, I never know how to say it. Um, but yeah, welcome back. Um, we're moving forward here in the studio. I'm Emily, and I'm here with my guest, Brian. Uh, we're going to talk about a few national news stories. Um, up first was the recent Philadelphia police shooting that happened earlier this week. Um, so another mass shooting. Um, de- depending on how you categorize mass shootings, which apparently isn't standardized, but um, anyway, occurred this week during a standoff between Philadelphia police and the man they were attempting to serve a narcotic- narcotics warrant to. Um, six officers were shot, but none were killed, and all were expected to recover, which is a positive outcome that we're not used to hearing um, about as mass shootings become ever more routine. Of course, this isn't the same as the other ones that we've heard about recently, which is, you know, we're more used to a lone gunman kind of mowing down a crowd of innocent bystanders. And it's it's different, not different or less um, upsetting when there's police involved, but it's um, it is different, but it's not less upsetting. Um, Anyway, so an AR-15 semi-automatic rifle was found at the scene, despite the suspect having a criminal record and being barred from owning one. Um, according to the gun violence archive, there have been, this is as of my research that I did on Friday. So that might've changed since then. But, um, 
there have been 261 mass shootings in the U.S. so far this year, and today marks the 230th day of the year. So there have been more mass shootings than days of the year so far. And again, um, again, I don't mass shootings. It's it's an interesting statistic because there isn't a standardized way of saying, well, this is a mass shooting and this is not a mass shooting. It's it's kind of there's some that are clearly when you know when one guy mo- you know kills 30 people, but when the numbers get smaller, it's it's harder to know. Sure, but I I yeah. mean I think any gun violence is. It's bad. bad. No, I'm not saying like, it's bad. Uh, I'm just saying specifically when yeah, we're looking the, at statistics, numbers, uh, especially for inflammatory reasons. A lot of, like there's been a lot of whenever. I mean, and and I, I think it is inflammatory and I think it should be. But like it's it's important to remember when you're looking at things on Instagram, for example, like all these statistics saying zero mass shootings in these 30 countries, 13 in this country, you know, 200 in the U.S. is that um, just it's I mean, I, I just like I guess just a call to do your, you do your research and know what you're talking about, mm-hmm. I guess. I don't know. But anyway. I, I mean, I think it actually makes it even more horrifying when you start talking about just one on one shootings. Yeah. Smaller scale yeah. gun violence was, I think, is it still a, well, much, what we forget a about. much bigger problem? Like, uh, yeah. Yeah. Gun like just gun crime and uh, suicides, too. Like, I feel like these are never part of the conversations. And those are what those are things taking a, a lot more lives. I mean, that's a really interesting point. Um I think, yeah, I think part of what we, well, I also, let me, let me also wrap up that to say that, you know, at our last live show we did a couple of weeks ago, it had been just after the Dayton and El Paso shooting. So we didn't really have a chance to touch on that, um, mm-hmm. them and our grief over those events or discuss them in detail. Um, but, you know, at the end of July, two separate mass shootings occurred practically back to back, leaving 31 people dead, dozens wounded in public, um, outdoor spaces that you know historically where people don't feel unsafe in in the u.s but um that's clearly changing um yeah it's 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 the issue is there's so many issues involved here when we talk about um gun violence specifically it's there's access to guns which is a big one that um seems like it would solve a lot of problems if we could just kind of stem the flow Mm -hmm. of gun ownership in this country but you know for a lot of reasons that i think are mostly financial yeah that doesn't happen like, uh, literally like the profits of the gun industry are more important yeah. than human lives yeah and yeah <laughs> it's horrible and it's, like, but uh, it's like the type of the type of prop i mean for lack of you know feels it's propaganda i think that they they use to convince the people making decisions and the people who vote for those people that it's not about money for them that it's about your, your, you know, your safety or your in personal safety, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, all right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, sure. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I can see how that really, I guess it's an issue that really speaks to people's identities. Like, in a, uh, yeah, if you're well, taught your whole life, like this is a, your liberty is foundation right. on your ability to go out and buy a right. gun. Uh, right. It's easy to see how someone like how that message right. could be. It's a, it's a very personal message. And it's like, when you look at the, um, the, Bundy uprising, I forgot his first name. The uprisings that were out in Colorado yeah, years the ago, ranch, the ranch yeah. guys, like that, that kind of gets at like what you think about, like that. I think that that portion of the population is this idea that, like, well, you can't take this land. You know what I mean? It's like standing up to the government. But that being said, I was reading something and I, I'm missing the context right now, but it's, you know, as, you know, as the, the, the amount of weapons that public citizens are able to have you know, private citizens are able to own the police department and the, the army and the national guard, the types of weaponry that they have, have, you know, have at their disposal is so it, it it kind of accelerates disproportionately, like proportionally almost to the amount of 
weapons that individuals have in the sense this, this idea that like you feel safer maybe if you have a gun if you're t- if you're talking about it in the sense not just safety against someone breaking into my house but you know you know the uh, an up if you're looking at it from like a maybe paranoid perspective that like oh the government's gonna try and take over my life or something yeah there's no chance there's no chance you, exactly <laughs> and have, like long story short you will never guns. yeah long story short it's a fallacious <laughs> argument because they have all the guns. They have tanks and shit. <laughs> yeah, it's a fallacious. Exactly. So long they story have short. nuclear weapons. <laughs> there, is, there is no private citizen militia that is going to, you are never going to win against the army or the police force. <laughs> long story short, that's what I was getting at. It's a fallacious argument. Anyway, okay, moving forward. Um, so a New York Times um, quote from this specific uh, issue of the Philadelphia police shootings. Um, While cities can enforce public carrying restrictions... Pennsylvania, like many states, does not allow local governments to regulate firearms. Other states limit cities from passing their own laws. Compounding that challenge, each of the 50 states and the nation's capital has its own set of laws, giving the country a patchwork of policies. Um, yeah. Well, I mean, and that's, I mean, the the problem there is obviously like, even if Philadelphia right. could set its own gun laws, you could just go to Pittsburgh and buy, yeah. or like, you know, whatever the and then case just drive is, on it, drive like, over yeah. or you know, obviously driving across state lines is not, it's like, I mean, it might be illegal to do, but you can't like who's, you can't have a checkpoint at every state line. And that's kind of part of what the point of having 50 states is, is that you kind of pass freely once you're here between the states. Yeah. uh, So it does seem like uh, just kind of some national policies on gun ownership. Yeah. Could be helpful. (laughs) Yeah. Could be helpful. Maybe. (laughs) Um, Yeah. I mean, I don't know. So when stuff like these shootings happen, um, there's there's this tweet that went out in 2015 by a guy named Dan Hodges that says, in retrospect, Sandy Hook marked the end of the U.S. gun control debate. Once America decided killing children was bearable, it was over. And I read that and I get really sad. <laughs> um, and it makes me and, you know, and sometimes you hear a lot of, you know, the current candidates for 2020 talk, you know, saying gun reform, it's going to happen or like, you know, just people who are either actually optimistic or know that they need to at least sound optimistic that it could happen. And it's, I don't know if it's going to happen anytime soon. Do you, do you agree with that quote? I, I, uh, I mean, I, I think we've seen that there's been truth to it, but uh, I think we can be hopeful that some kind of change could happen. I do think there is a, a danger in, I don't know, kind of uh pessimism no but in uh talking about school shootings specifically mm-hmm. or, or the mass shootings even where yeah. it's, these are events that i think are really uh scare people people mm-hmm. and because schools are places of safety or like a big concert outside or places where you hope to feel safe right. places where you need need to be able to feel safe uh and to some degree i think these uh like there's, I don't think there's any policy that can make sure your kid is going to be safe every right. day that you kiss him and send him no. to the school bus. Like, uh, you know, yeah. they could get hit by a car on the way or yeah. there's so many things. And yeah. uh, so I think that there's a danger when you talk about these types of things, though, where a lot of people look at it and have that logic, basically, mm-hmm. where it's like it's unpreventable. Like, you know, mm-hmm. this is just there's crazy, right. dang- there's well, crazy, dangerous people in our country. We can't do anything about it. The right. best we can hope for is like put a guard at the school door with a gun right? or like more uh, guns. More guns right. And, I, and, and there's also the danger of, of making it a mental health issue specifically, which is something that's been really interesting. There was a rally recently that I, a friend was telling me about where it was people with mental health issues saying this is dangerous rhetoric 
around the issue issue of mental health because it makes it it stigmatizes people with mental health problems more often. There's a the, I would say the majority of people with 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 even severe mental health issues are not about to pick up a gun and shoot 30 people. There's other factors at play. Um, no, I, I don't always. think they've ever. And I'm not saying I'm not saying you are either. I'm just I'm wait. Sorry, I'm saying I don't think there's ever been any correlation between mental health health illness and violence. I'm saying that, well, yeah, we're on the same page. I think that there are, there's, I think that someone who does do this, um, there, there could be a mental health issue, but it's not the point. And in fact, what they found was that actually there's more of a correlation between these types of shootings and hatred of women. There was this really interesting New York Times article that said that that's basically the connecting thread between, if you look at the vast, if not all of the mass shootings, first of all, they're, they're committed by men. Mm-hmm. Um, and their men have a history of violence against women. They have a history of even writing manifestos about hating women. And that is um, even, a, that's a more of the connecting thread than any sort of mental health issue might be. Um, and I think that gets at really gets more at the root of like the violence in our yeah. culture too, yeah. where it's like, uh, you know, unfortunately like, yeah, we don't feel safe sending our children to school and we don't feel safe uh you know going to a public concert anymore but how many women don't feel yeah. safe going home to their walking home at night and that's spa- something but going home to their house oh, to their yeah. spouse you know like uh yeah and so like the misogy- misogynistic yeah. violence i think it's is something, something yeah. i would really need to like deal with yeah like, uh, and i feel like having more women in power might actually get that done we got to move forward this is mm-hmm. so i guess we could talk about uh, seems sounds like all of these for <laughs> yeah. half hour at a time we have one more national issue today um so there's been an amnesty international travel advisory for the u.s um amnesty international huh yeah i didn't see the story amnesty international issued a travel advisory for travelers planning to visit the united states after last weekend shootings um the advisory calls on people worldwide to exercise caution and have an emergency contingency plan when traveling throughout the usa the global organization said gun violence has become, quote, so prevalent in the U.S. that it amounts to a human rights crisis, end quote. The advisory vaguely implies that marginalized groups such as women, immigrants, and members of the LGBT community face the highest risk of gun violence. It also warns people to avoid large gatherings at, quote, cultural events, places of worship, schools, and shopping malls, and use caution when visiting local bars, nightclubs, and casinos. Um, the warning concludes by saying that under international human rights law, the U.S. is obliged to uh, lost my place. The U.S. is obliged to regulate access to firearms and protect the rights of people to quote live and move about freely without the threat of gun violence. End quote. In his latest response to last week's tragedy, President Trump suggested that building more mental institutions to combat the issue of gun violence in America is his plan. Um, so this is something we've already talked about a little bit um, when we were talking about you know, gun just now. This is a good transition um, that all, and it also just makes sense that our national stories would both be about guns. Um, I mean, so a really interesting question here is who's responsible for upholding and enforcing international human rights law? And can the, how can the international community get involved? And if it should, um, and that's obviously like a really big question and also ties in, you know, things I've, talked about a little bit about the UN and I love the UN, but I don't know if it actually has the ability to affect change yeah, as I mean, often well, as I would like it to. There's no, uh, there's no mechanism, right? Uh, like a, an enforcement, it's all like good faith essentially. I, yeah, yeah. Where, uh, cause there's all kinds of, like, uh, I feel like the U S doesn't live up to a lot of its commitments that, you know, under the UN we are assigned on. No. Yeah. <laughs> and backing out left and right. Like it doesn't even matter. Yeah. yeah. But even just like, uh, 
just like the bill, uh, the you know, international bill of human rights and stuff. Like, yeah. if you look at, if you applied that to the U S yeah. like, yeah, it's not a, no, I know. I think this is interesting. Cause to me, we really have this conception of the U S like, uh, I think all of us uh, mm-hmm. have right. really have ingrained in us the idea of U S exceptionalism yeah. where if we the see US is safe, countries in the middle East are dangerous. Don't go there. Yeah. yeah. And so to see like Amnesty, Amnesty international say like the U S is not safe yeah. for travel. We're like, Oh my God, like what is yeah. that? And it's this, like, really, yeah. this shouldn't be like that. I don't know. Right. That's surprising. Actually, there was actually an advisory. I don't know if it was Amnesty International specifically, but I remember reading there was an advisory against travel to the U.S. back when um, a lot of the, I think it was when the Black Lives Matter um, protests were happening. And there was when all the information about police shootings of black citizens, unarmed black citizens was first coming to light in the way that it has the last, you know, five, eight years. Um, I remember reading that there was some nations like, don't go there. Yeah. <laughs> the I police mean, just shoot unarmed if you citizens. Are, if you're a black person in the U.S. Yeah. you might get shot by a police yeah, officer. For no reason. Period. Like that, uh, yeah. That's true. And yeah. No, I know. It's reasonable to warn um, someone about. I know. So we're going to we're going to move along just because <laughs> we're running out of time. So I'm going to play a, a short break, a little music break. We need a breather. Um a little Kathleen Hanna to like, you know, I don't know, gear us up and calm us down maybe a little bit. And then we'll be back in a minute or two to finish up our stories for the day. See you soon.
are back. Uh, you're listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Emily here with Brian. All right. Moving on to the world news for the day. Um, oh, and sorry. You were just listening to Decepticon by La Tigra. Kathleen Hanna forever. Um, okay. So world news for the day. Uh, under uh, under And this is also this first story actually is uh, a bit of U.S. news as well, but it's a little bit of both. Um, under intense pressure from President Trump. Uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu barred two members of the United States Congress, Representatives Ilan Omar and Rashida Tlaib, from entering the country due to their support of the Boycott, Divestment and Sanctions Movement, or BDS, um, which is a movement to boycott Israel financially, essentially, because they disagree with a lot of the policies against their own citizens in the country, um, the Palestinian conflict essentially at its root. Um, on Friday, Israel said that one of the Congresswomen, Representative Rashida Tlaib, um, could enter on humanitarian grounds so that she could see her 90-year-old grandmother after she promised to, quote, not promote boycotts during her stay. Shortly after she was granted access to the West Bank, Tlaib announced in a tweet that she would not be going, saying the conditions placed on her trip were not what her grandmother would have wanted. Um Omar and Talib say that their support of movements like BDS are based on policy disagreements, not anti-Jewish sentiment. Critics of the boycott movement, however, call it, quote, economic warfare against Israel. Um, yeah, so this is a really interesting, really interesting uh, topic, um, including the president of our country essentially telling another country to not admit members of Congress it's it's I mean the internal like the infight like the the political like like it's 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 kind of, it's very scary. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I mean, on, and on on clearly political grounds. So yeah, like um. But so what's next? It's like if I'm like right. if I'm a politician and I say like uh, don't vote for Trump, like right. I'm not going to be allowed to go to. He's going to call like uh, I don't know some other right. president. No, yeah, it's crazy. It's uh, crazy. It's crazy, and it and the fact that it worked is it's scary. I mean, what, <laughs> but it's also not not surprising because Israel's policies, like um, Netanyahu especially, is like buddy buddies with Trump. Yeah, um, um and a, on a lot of things. Um, yeah, and I mean, I mean, we can get into Israel right now, but we are running low on time. Um, so we just leave it at that. Move on to the last story. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts you want to bring up? I mean, I just to me, regardless of where you stand on the right. issue, it's horrifying to me how much. I think that the right to boycott is clearly free speech and protected as free speech. Mm -hmm. And it has come under attack. And there's like, I think like half the states in the U S have anti BDS legislation, including New York boycott. Oh, like specifically against Israel saying that, like basically if you boycott, if you boycott Israel, like the state of New York will blacklist you. And like, uh, I think it, yeah, I think it's your right to, I mean, it's, it's it's exercising your, um, Right to free speech. Right to free speech, but also your like your um, economic yeah, rights. Yeah, like, like we're, uh, this pretty is pretty basic. Like uh, this is capitalism at its finest. Is right? your ability to say I don't want to buy something from here because I don't agree. Like that's. <laughs> so to yeah. I think to yeah I think it's really yeah. problematic to you know no matter to where you clamp, to try line. to clamp yeah. down on that right rather yeah. than address you know yeah I don't know what the, the issues. Yeah. That's ugh. okay. All right. Uh, last. Last world news story. We're also probably going to skim through it pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and a suicide bomber killed 63 people and wounded 182 in an attack on a packed wedding reception in K- Kabul earlier this week. 
Uh, the attack came as the Taliban and the United States are trying to negotiate an agreement on the withdrawal of U.S. forces in exchange for a Taliban commitment on security and peace talks with Afghanistan's U.S.-backed government. The deal would include a phased U.S. troop pullout in exchange for Taliban guarantees that Afghanistan will not be used by extremist groups to attack U.S. targets. Um, it is reported that 14,000 U.S. troops remain in Afghanistan, training and advising Afghan security forces and conducting counterinsurgency operations. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot at, at play here. Um, you know, there's the question of will how is will there be a time when the U.S. I mean, should the U.S. even I mean, should never been there in the first place. Can the country like how how can the U.S. leave and leave a place that's I think they just, I mean, they've like as wiped quickly out as possible yeah. is my opinion. do you think that they won't just leave a power vacuum for where more problems will cause or does it not I matter? I think that we are the biggest problem there. I don't disagree. The, the that, U.S. Yeah. has killed more civilians than Taliban forces yeah. or ISIS forces combined in the last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you don't hear about it either. No. And I mean, honestly, to be fair, I also didn't hear about this one until research for this. Like, no, and it's, I mean, just, that, it's not news point, anymore. That, yeah, yeah. Afghanistan just doesn't make the headlines anymore. Yeah. And it's like, we're just going to enter this state where we're just permanently occupying this country. Yeah. Uh, we've been there over 20 years. Like, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it is I nuts. mean, you have, yeah. you have people fighting there who weren't, well, bo- it's who the question. It's the question. Well, not the question. It's like, I, the idea, like, I don't think we should be there period, but it's how, how do we get out of there without, with do it, leaving as little damage of our own making behind as possible. You know what I mean? And I don't have an answer. Yeah. I think we are creating problems by being there. I, I think we're creating problems, but I think leaving without trying to figure out a way to, leave some sort of mechanism in place to might also cause like cause a lot of problems too. You know what I mean? Yeah. But like, uh, so what, so you're saying like we should just stay there forever? No, I don't want to stay there forever. I don't have an answer, but it's like, like, how do we do that? Right. Like, uh, there's lots of places in the world that are violent places. Like, uh, to say that the U S should be there every everywhere that there is. I don't think we should be there. No, I don't. We are. I don't, I don't, but I also, I, I think that, our presence there does more to destabilize the region than I don't than disagree. Else. But how do how do we leave without our leaving causing even more destabilization? Like we've already we've done a ton of damage there. I'm not saying we haven't, but how do we leave and not leave a vacuum that creates even more problems? I don't have an answer. I I see in your face that you just we're just going to keep talking in a circle because no, no, we I all. Mean, you, yeah. I, I I don't. The, the, to me, the question is yeah. is wrong because it's like if if the question is like. First do first do no harm. It's like we are we are doing harm just right. by being there. But I don't know but, if that's if, if that's possible in the scenario. I think there's harm to be done either way, and it's kind of like how do we I think we sh- I think we will do more good if we get out of there, but it's also like how do we get out of there and you know. Anyway, I've said it already. <laughs> All right. Any last thoughts on this one? Because we're going to move on to a good news story. Yeah. I mean, it's just like the U.S. is not good at state building. We're not. We're not. No. I I know. I don't know. And I don't know. But I am also it's also it's I guess the fear of the, you know, I don't know. It's like the unknown of how do we get out? What's going to happen when we leave? But it's just so 20 years of damage argument to me because it's like when there's so many bad guys in the world that we don't have a problem with. Like the By, ta- well, like the Taliban thirty years ago. We quote when, unquote is not me. Yeah, no, yeah. I, mean, I know. As, but a, as a nation, yeah, and I mean, but it's like, yeah, how did we years choose? Ago, we yeah. armed the Taliban because right. we wanted them there 
right with no guns. we have caused all of our own problems i know i know same in a lot of yeah no it's all our fault all of it's our fault we fucked it all up we i ran all of it um and and of course uh i, I think and you look at it from an issue where like both both economic interests is why we get involved in these things and part and then using i think almost a specter the shadow of world war ii and how we you know, because of us, we saved Europe from the Nazis. And it's kind of like living in that. It's both, it's both using that, living in the shadow of that and using it to our advantage for economic purposes. Yeah. It's like a, it's a cold war mentality where it's like the U S has to be the good guy in the world that dictates what is good for the rest of the world because there's this big bad guy. Right. And now we live in a world where that doesn't even, right. That mentality is still there, but there's no Soviet union. Like there's no, there's no, it's, and so we're trying to do it against like terror in general, but terror is just an adjective. Like you can just pick whatever bad guy you want and apply that term. (laughs) And then we just go in and take all the oil. Um, all right. So let's end on a good note, a happy note. There's a lot of been bad stuff today. A lot of interesting topics in the last minute. Um, so this week I saw two articles. Um, one, uh, both about um, finding cures for diseases that essentially up until that point had like, I'm, I'm forgetting specific numbers, but 80, 90% death rates um, they're in, they found that an effective cure for Ebola as well as uh, drug resistant tuberculosis um, and like, ha- like have had the sex, the rate success rates previously thought unthinkable. And it's really exciting. Um, you know, just as a reminder, Ebola is is a, a viral disease that if you get it, it was essentially a death sentence. It's it's kind of there was a big scare in the U.S. because there was um how many years ago, four or five years ago, oh, yeah. there was like there was the there hundreds of thousands, tra- travel, thousands of people died. From yeah. Um, and a, a doctor came back to Brooklyn, was riding the L train and turns out he had Ebola. Um, but with our you know health system, it's always the L train. It's always the fucking L train. <laughs> Um, all right. So we're basically out of time. Anyway, those are good news stories. Um, it made me happy because I'm afraid of diseases, horribly afraid of contagious diseases. Um, but yeah, so uh, you've been listening to Objection to the Rule on Radio Free Brooklyn. I'm Emily Scott, Brian McTiernan. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you for having me. Your points of view were so interesting <laughs> and fascinating. Um, you can listen to us every Sunday at 1 p.m. All right. I will not see you. I'll talk to you next week. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>